where I am right now, what is that journey about? You know, what's happening there? And I'm still single, I'm still childless, um, and I'm recovering from health issues. So I really wanted to encourage people that God is God is so much still with you and, and there in the wilderness period. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Inspired, those of you who are new to us, is all about just uh, meeting different people from different walks of life who've got obviously different life experiences and sharing from their perspective and their faith journey and how God has been close to them, how he's been at work in and through them. And I just love the variety and we need to hear this good stuff because there's so much rubbish and bad and bleak news out there. So this is all about counteracting that and filling you with renewed vigor and vim for, for life day by day with all the sucker punches that are thrown in the mix. So this week, I'm really excited. Most weeks um, we have, so far, I haven't sort of drained the pool of all my buddies, but uh, I can't yet claim Tola Dolfish as a buddy because we've not yet met, but I'm really excited to have you <laughs> on the show, Tola. How are you doing? I'm really good, and I'm excited to call you a buddy too, so we're on the same page. Brilliant. And Well, actually, I mean, I know we've got loads of mutual buddies, just, just the five that you mention, all that give plugs for your book on the front cover or whatever, um, three of those. So Rebecca, I know, is a good mate of yours, and she was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and then Joe Saxon, I'm interviewing her her in a couple of weeks and Kathy Madivan. First time I met her, funny enough, was at Spring Harvest um, and we were speaking together, you know, both doing sort of main stagey stuff and she, I just spat my chewing gum into, it, into a cup and she picked up my cup and, and drank it. So that was our lovely first encounter. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, um, so just in terms of uh, introducing you, I mean, there's lots of things I could say, but you're currently an editor and creative director for Women Alive magazine under Premier. Um, your book, Still Standing, 100 Lessons from an Inverted Comma Unsuccessful Life is, is absolutely fascinating. I love it in general. What I'm looking forward to is that I think your sort of hallmark would be rawness, uh, honesty, integrity, um, and openness in terms of discussing stuff. So you've been through a, a lot uh, in your, I can I say, relatively short. Most people I've interviewed have been in sort of 50s, 60s, because I suppose you know, you need life experience for us to talk about to be on, on this podcast, but you've packed a yeah. lot in, and in terms of, um, um, well, losing a baby, being married, being divorced, battling with cancer, you've been a model, you've worked at the Mother's Union 10 years, um, all sorts to pack. So anyway, I've, I've said enough, um, but I'm <laughs> fascinated in terms of uh, getting your backstory because, um, well, you did a TEDx talk, and I, it's interesting because I know you're born in England, but you you did in that TEDx talk straight away said I am Nigerian. So, so just give us give us your early days backstory. Thanks, I mean, yeah, it's interesting hearing you say all these things. I think, gosh, have I done? Did I do those things? Is that really me? So it's yeah. really interesting. Um, just hearing someone kind of feedback to you what you what your life has looked like. Hmm. Uh, in terms of my kind of backstory yeah so I my parents are Nigerian so by default I'm Nigerian but I was born in the UK um, but I've never actually been um, so that's caused some issues in terms of identity mm -hmm. however I did eat Nigerian food growing up at home and I had lost Nigerian friends um, so I'm not completely <laughs> devoid of that culture and yeah in my TEDx talk I did just I, I was talking about being Nigerian mainly because uh, I think I started it talking about how my mum just did not believe that there was anywhere could not be an intellect. She mm -hmm. So even when I was, I was probably about whatever age you are when you learn to read, I think it's, is it four at schools in the UK? Yeah. Um, I, 
my uh, teacher at the time told my mum, you know, look, Tola is a lovely child, but she's a little bit slow, so she's not going to be able to keep up with the rest of the class in terms of reading and writing. And my mum, proud Nigerian, said, absolutely not, took me out of school, taught me to read and write, put me back into school, um, and now I'm a, a journalist. So <laughs> that was where that story came in. Um, but... Yeah, there's a lot of pride among Nigerians just in terms of achievement and education. And I'm really grateful to my mum. for all we've, we've had our issues over the years, mums and daughters, I think that's quite a common theme. But mm-hmm. I'm really grateful to her for that because who knows what my life would look like if she had uh, taken that advice from the teacher. Yeah, I... I preach around local churches even last Sunday and there were a couple, probably three Nigerian families in there and I'm always well two things to say maybe one is that they usually bring so much energy to the party in terms of, I love <laughs> how they you know worship and uh, obviously slightly more free than us uh, reticent uh, Brits but but also um, it's interesting how often uh, you look at them and their kids they might be teenagers but whereas the other teenagers on their phones or whatever and not they're very engaged they are sort of <clears throat> rigid and to attention and it's sort of slightly sort of uh, mili- maybe military sort of discipline behind them you think. And, and you're wondering whether they really want to be there but they're on their best behavior and it's just it's a slightly different a- approach isn't it yeah, it definitely is that. And I'm glad you said that it's we're on our best behaviour because that's how I was brought up. Um, you, you, and, and going to church when I was younger was never an option. So I found it really interesting when I met people who whose parents went to church and they didn't and they were children. I thought, but don't you live at home? How are you allowed not to go to church? Because for me, it, it was just expected. You just do what you're told. My mum used to say this phrase which has stayed with me in adulthood, which is I'm not your age mate, which basically means like we're not friends. So yeah. we don't have, can't have conversations about what you want to do or don't want to do. You are the child and I am the adult. Um, and that's not always a good thing, of course, but it, it did really give me uh, just a, a level of respect for my elders that um, was kind of non-negotiable. Yeah. And I think that has helped me, definitely helped me in the workplace because I... I was able to negotiate some potentially difficult work relationships because I, I defaulted to, you know, if you're my line manager, you've got to earn a higher position than me, I, by default, respect you and what you do. So that was quite helpful. So your mum sounds like an amazing lady. We'd love to meet yes. her. Um, their marriage didn't work out. How did that affect you? Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because as I was talking earlier, I was really conscious that I was talking a lot about my mum and not my dad. Hmm. And I think that's mainly because my parents divorced when I was about four, I think, four or five. Uh, They came to the UK together, bought a house, started this family, and then things just didn't work out. And life did change quite drastically for myself, my elder sister, my younger brother, um, um, a financial shift as well for the family. Um, as to why they broke up, I mean, they've got their own, they both had their own kind of stories around that, but it did really affect um, my relationship with my mum because uh, we were very, we had a very close relationship. And I remember even now, even though I was quite young then, just always wanting to do what she did and follow her around. And she had a home office and I always wanted to hang out on her home office and do whatever she was doing. And we're quite similar in character. But then when my parents divorced, she kind of had... My dad uh, worked in Kuwait and Dubai and the Middle East and 
he was away a lot and my mum kind of became mum and dad and so she, it's almost like she didn't have time to kind of just be mum and 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 hang out with us and she she was trying to do everything and make sure that we were you know still really obedient the really obedient Nigerian children that they'd brought us up as and I think also she didn't want us to become a statistic so I was born in the 80s and I mean things have changed so much then but since then sorry but she didn't want you know us to be known as yeah just the black children did the did the what ended up in gangs or whatever um so she always said you know you you have to do keep out of trouble always do your best at school um Mm. she was very very strict with us and i understand why and um i do appreciate that so did did that have to lead eventually to an eruption of of teenage rebellion or or, or later on (laughs) love that you picked up on that Simon yes uh, it did for me my brother and sister maybe not so much Um, I'm the middle child though so there is that thing about us being the black sheep Mm -hmm. I I did I I definitely wanted to go away for university Um, that was non-negotiable for me and even though they were good because I wanted to study journalism and English and also classics actually there were some good universities in London doing that but I wanted to go away and my mum, there are a number of things my mum said to me, you know, not under my roof. Um, and I thought, great, well, when I'm not under your roof anymore, I can do what I want. So I mm-hmm. kind of did at university. I went to university straight after school, so I was 18. I went to university in Birmingham. I was going to read classics at Reading, but I, I think I chose journalism at Birmingham because it, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer and a journalist. I didn't, I didn't have any hesitation around that. So I thought better to do something I actually know I want to do. And I just went into university and I just kind of fell into this world of partying and boys and all the fun of university years. And I, actually, I, uh, I went to an all-girls school. So just being having that access to boys was amazing for me. <laughs> but I didn't... Um, interestingly, like, substance... Uh, abuse if I can call it that drinking and drugs I never never really appealed while I was living at home or while at university so I never really drank at all which I'm grateful for because I feel like I have a bit of an addictive personality mm-hmm. um but I did uh I took it into quite a few relationships and I had an abortion in my first year of university which I didn't want and was quite traumatic uh, so it really did open my eyes up to what what can happen when I do things my own way and I'm you know not under my mum's roof which I was so keen to escape um, and then I quickly realised it wasn't all the fun that it seemed um, I don't want to just skip over the, the your mention of abortion there in terms of yeah. how, how painful that's been any comment there um, it's sometimes I think oh I would have a I don't know how old she'd be now I would or he I would have a child but you know a child by now uh, sometimes I think about that very rarely, I think, because I, God is, he's just so kind. I I remember having a time in my final year of university, I wasn't really walking with God, but I also wasn't n- not a Christian. I just wasn't going to church necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this Easter weekend, in my, was it my final year? My final year, Easter weekend, and I was alone in my student house, everyone had gone home. And I, I just felt God was asking me to fast and pray. And I hadn't even been in that 
place where I was doing that regularly. I did that at home. That was something my mum encouraged us to do, but I wasn't, as an individual, doing that. So it was quite strange that that came to mind. But I did. I turned off all... I had a phone and t- I was watching TV. I turned off all my screens and I, I think I, I did a, a, just a water fast for three days that Easter weekend. And I felt God asked me to write down everything that I felt separated me between me me and God so all the things Mm -hmm. I felt were shameful or sinful or um, and abortion was one of those things because I'd never I'd never wanted abortion I absolutely loved children I did child development at school actually and I was always I worked in the school sorry the church crash and um, I would babysit I loved I adored children so I'd never I would never have said that was something that I would have done voluntarily so I wrote down all these things and I, cr- I just wept that weekend. It was just mm. I felt such a release. And then on the Monday, 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 uh, I just felt, when I ended the fast, I just felt like something had, had shifted and gone. I didn't feel this burden of um, this weighty um, grief anymore. Yeah. And, and so when I talk about it now... I kind of don't really. I remember that this happened. That something that I didn't want to do, and I remember the comments. I remember the nurse saying to me, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And my boyfriend at the time was in the room, and he was adamant I was having it, and I just said yes. Um, but I don't feel. I don't feel the guilt anymore. I don't feel the shame about it, and mm. that's only by God's grace. Mm. Yeah, I feel like. Um We've, we, we sort of jumped a bit in terms of not, I didn't, haven't asked you about where sort of Jesus came in for you, not just being a hand-me-down faith or, or forced or coerced into adhering yeah. to your mother's religion. So when did you, did you in the teenage years have, a, have any personal encounter yourself? Well, actually, I was about to talk about my baptism at 16, but just as you said this, I remember that, so I grew up in, my parents were Catholic, but my mum... I think nominal Catholics. So my mum started taking us to church when I was just after divorce, I think, because local churches were really kind to her, to mm-hmm. us. Um, but when I was 11, 10 or 11, I went, I was, I went on holiday to Atlanta, so my uncle, and I think my, my mum just thought he'd be a good male influence because my dad wasn't around so much. And my, my uncle and I are still very close today. And uh, he, is Nigerian, had an American wife, and they used to have lots of reunions. And I remember one where there was this boy about my age, 10, 11, and he said, he asked me something like, he said, are you saved? Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, what does that mean? But I remember thinking I wanted to be, and maybe because it was this boy that I thought was quite cute, but I thought I want to be saved, but I didn't know what he meant. Um, and then when, we, when I turned 13, we started going to a different church, which is an Elim Pentecostal church in, in London. And I went to Sunday school there and everybody was getting baptised at 16. And, and so I just did because it was something that everyone was doing. I, I, I liked church, I liked Sunday school, I liked hearing the stories. I wasn't against it. And I just thought, oh, this is a, my mum will be happy because, uh, you know, she's saying that I'm taking this thing that she's, that she's been dragging us to, I'm taking it seriously. Mm. So it was mainly just to tick a box, I think. But I also wasn't an atheist. I just didn't really have a strong sense of of what that would mean for my life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just, I got baptised at 16. It was a great experience. I remember the day, everyone was, my mum was really happy. There was music playing in our house and gospel music was playing and 
Um, I, had a very, I have a very uh, musical family. I come from a very musical family. So we used to sing together a lot. And I just remember it being a very joyous day and I felt like I'd helped to create that. Mm. Uh, and so I'm, just, I'm, I'm always interested. I mean, I didn't have any sort of dramatic flashes and lights. Uh, and I put it, make it hard to pin down a date well, I don't think it was a day maybe when I suddenly was born again or whatever. It was, but it was by osmosis almost. But, but then I've had numbers of significant encounters that I can look back and think, yeah. well, that was undeniable. Have you, have you had any of those? Yes, I have. And most memorable one was quite recently, actually. And it honestly filled me with delight. And I don't know how that sounds quite dramatic, but it really did. So I went to the Premier Gospel Awards, which is an annual event that Premier Christian Radio puts on for Premier Gospel, that one of their stations, uh, just celebrating gospel artists. And I, as editor of Premier Women Live magazine, was presenting one of the awards. And um, it was just an amazing, joyous evening of music. As I said, I grew up in a musical household, so music is really important to me. And we had this great time at this, at this awards event. And then the next day, I went to a church that I hadn't ever been to in London. And my friend, I went with my friend who took me. And um, they, would, they had this time of prayer and it was very quiet in the room. And I suddenly, I think, I think the, the leader said something like, um, we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come in this place. And so it was very quiet. And I'm used to being that, you know, revering silence. So I was quiet. And then I just had this the words to this song come into my head and it just repeated over and over again and I felt like I should say it out loud, sing it out loud. And then I thought, who does that? No one does, no one does that. This is, I, I, no one in this church knows me. I don't know what, the, what their kind of policy is around a, a random person standing up and, and singing once we're all meant to be quiet. Um, and, you know, yes, I'm Nigerian, but I'm also very British. I was born here and I don't... <laughs> do things you know out of turn or to distract to detract from um what everyone else is doing I, I kind of stay in line for the most part well sometimes but anyway I, I just th- thought it was madness and I also have had this feeling like is this prideful because I know I can sing do you know why I, I just felt a bit like why would this come into my head anyway all these thoughts went round and round in about 20 seconds and then I prayed you know god if this is you then just let me sing it I won't double, double, I won't think about too much. I would just sing it. And then I felt, I just found the words coming out my mouth and then suddenly I was singing this thing out loud and everybody was silent. I just, I just felt so full of the spirit. It was just incredible. Mm. Um, and then the leaders, after I finished, the leader said, can everyone sing that together? And it just was the unity was just absolutely beautiful. And the most beautiful thing about that is that at the end of service, there was no kind of like, you know, well done for this person or stepping forward or, you know, no one needed to talk to me and say who this was. Um, there was one person who I leaving said, I really felt like you were blessing the church with that. And that was it. And I mm. left and I hadn't been touched since. And, and that for me felt like that this is really from God because this isn't about me. This is just about God's glory. And he just was able to use me. And I think it was because I'd had this from the day before the fest at the Premier Gospel Awards, I think I really had this heart from that had come from just worshipping for almost the, the full evening. Mm. Um, 
And yeah, that was just an amazing moment for me. I, I love that. I really mm. loved it. Um, let's talk about modeling. Um, so yeah, I don't know how long your spell was in modeling. I mean, it was, was that a hard place to be? I mean, I picture it as a cutthroat place, a sort of difficult, dark place where often you know, me too, it must mean loads of those sort of abusive experiences going on. What was your experience like that? Was it more positive? Um, it was a mixture, if I'm honest, Simon. Uh, the, the Me Too situation, I, I wasn't well-known, anywhere near well-known enough for that to be my experience, and I'm grateful for that. At the time, I felt... So I started when I was 18, I felt really... Um, I was quite upset that I didn't go further with it because I loved modelling. I love doing catwalk. I love doing shoots. I love trying all ridiculous clothes that no one's going to wear in real life. Um, it was just all so much exciting to me. But at the time, I, I, I so I, I got a lot of good feedback from agencies. And I did shoots for individual designers. But when I was trying to join an agency and be represented by them, which at, back then was the main way to get, to get jobs, mm-hmm. I would get told, you know, you've got a great look, but you're not right for us. And the thing is, that kind of rejection is just part and parcel of the modelling industry, Um, like a lot of creative industries. And with modelling as well, you'd have castings, which is like audition processes, where they'd get everybody who they think they want for a shoot or a catwalk. And for the most part, you just look the same as everyone else because they're trying to find a particular type of person. Um, and then they just pick you off one by one. So that's quite unpleasant. But with the getting an agent, I, I accepted that that was, you know, rejection was part of it. But then I was trudging around in London and in New York as well. I went to lots of different agencies and one place gave me a list of all the agencies and I was ticking them off. I was going around and they were all saying, great, look, looking at my um, portfolio and all this stuff. And then one per- one man in London, one of the bookers, they call them bookers, the people that look after the models at the agencies, um, a black man, he said to me, look, what people are really, really saying to you is we just don't get much call for black models in, at the moment or at all, really. So mm. if you go to an agent that has one already has a black model on their books, they're not going to, they're not going to take you on because they've kind of fulfilled that quota. And yeah. um, Every agency would have this, what they call the new faces board mm-hmm. and um, or just the, the normal faces board. And they'd have all the Polaroids of models that uh, were assigned to them. And it was always just a sea of white faces, not black yeah. or Asian or brown, nothing else. And I, I hadn't realised that until we said that. And he was the only person that, that told me that. And, and I, I hadn't realised until you say it as well. Do you know what I mean? So we're the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's very different now. It's a very different industry now, and I'm, uh, I'm grateful for that. But I'm also a bit sad that I didn't get the opportunity. But I do still model now, actually, which has been nice. In fact, I've done. I did one a shoot last last Monday or Tuesday, which is really good fun. But yeah, it was a very different, a very, very different time. But I loved my experiences. I got to go to London Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week. Yeah, my so my experiences were mostly good when I was doing it, but there were some negative experiences just in, uh, I guess, what I wasn't able to do. Sure. 
Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast So listen, I want to get into the um, the stuff that I think has obviously uh, played a massive role in, in shaping you, and, and that is you've had some real sucker punches, haven't you? So you you know you want to live the dream life, you want to get married, you want to have a happy marriage, you want to have kids, and uh, and yet it, it hasn't panned out that way. Can you can you share that painful part? Yeah, do you know what? It feels like I say this kind of jokingly. That I've had my job experience because I <clears throat> excuse me did. Uh, my hu- ex-husband and I uh, had a baby that died not long after birth. And then shortly after that, my then-husband filed for divorce. And then last year, I was diagnosed with quite an aggressive cancer. So I feel like I've had the whole <laughs> the whole Joe experience now, and I'm yeah. looking forward to kind of uh, restoration. But, um, yeah, and that's your question. It, it, I, I wanted to be married with my first child by the time I was 23 or 24, Mm-hmm. And I think that came from being in the church and this expectation that you'd get married and have children. But I also wanted those things for myself. I did want them. And also, I I didn't really enjoy... the. I didn't enjoy having sex with my partner before I got married because I just felt like um, it, it felt tainted. And I'd been brought up with the understanding that sex is for marriage, so I wanted to to do that to want to enjoy it because I did enjoy it but I wanted to enjoy it fully I feel guilty about it yeah exactly um so I remember at 22 I'd just broken up with or I'd been broken up with by uh my boyfriend who I was not sleeping with but it was very good Christian kind of ticked all the right boxes uh Nigeria and all this stuff um he broke up with me and I was distraught and I told my mum, you have to find me something. You've got to, you've got to give me, get me an arranged marriage because otherwise I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. I was 22. Uh, and she, she didn't find anyone for me. But I then was engaged at 24, I think, and married at 25 or 26. And um, I loved being married. absolutely loved it. And then got, we got pregnant, or I got pregnant, and um, we were excited. Uh, and I, I was, I've always been quite healthy and quite sporty. But... Uh, uh, Annie, our daughter, was born by spontaneous labour, they called it, at about just before I was six months pregnant, I think. Right. And uh, she was alive when she was born because they, they can keep babies alive miraculously from really early these days, which always astounds me. Um, I remember seeing all her fingers and toes, everything was intact. Uh, but her lungs uh, collapsed a few hours after birth. And that sent both my husband and I into kind of a depression but all I could focus on was having the baby I didn't I didn't care about anything else yeah. um, but then he started to have 
or show doubts about us. And, and I don't think it was just because of that. I think it just exposed some of the issues that we'd maybe covered up before. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were divorced about 18 months after after Annie died. And um, I just went into freefall again. So the, the kind of years of university where I was kind of partying and doing all that stuff, I did again, but I was this time I was drinking and... Um, God, I mean, God is was, God is so kind. I keep saying this. God is so kind because he really protected me in that period. Um, some of the stuff I got myself into, situations I got myself into, I just think only God could have kind of protected me. I was a bit careless with my time and energy and um, just well-being, really. Um, I was in working for Mother's Union at the time and they were absolutely wonderful employers, just really looked after me and and kind of helped me navigate that period and then got through that somehow and started writing my book which came out a couple of years ago as you said earlier still standing to TEDx talk um and then um at the end of 2019 mm-hmm. um I was living in London by myself and I was enjoying it enjoying having my own space and I was enjoying having friends at dinner parties and finally feeling like I was an adult. Uh, and then I felt God tell me to move to Cheltenham, which was fine because I'd been to Cheltenham before and I loved it and I was really excited about being able to work remotely, which meant I could work anywhere. So that was, no, 2020, sorry, thanks to pandemic, yeah. And then moved to Cheltenham last year, 2021, and um, had, I found a lump in my lower abdomen and I, thought, and I went to my doctor and my GP in London because I was in between docs at the time. And she said, you know, it's probably just fibroids, which is a massive, um, I think it's a massive cells, but it's not necessarily cancerous. Uh, but she said, just in case, we'll have it checked out. Anyway, it turned out to be cancerous. And um, I then had an operation to remove this lump, which is, I think they said it was about, um, I want to say 20 centimetres. It was quite big when they removed mm. it. Um, along with my left ovary and fallopian tube. Um, So I was recovering from that, had this wonderful war wound uh, last June. and was. They they said to me, you know, if it doesn't go away, we're going to keep testing you, but if it doesn't go away, we'll have to have chemotherapy. And I kind of didn't really hear that. I was just praising God for being here, for being free of this lump, determined to be a bit more healthy and focus on um, my well-being and physical health. And then uh, I was, I think I was walking back to my to my apartment in Cheltenham um, and then my, my phone rang and it was my doctor who said my oncologist said that we've got your latest test results and they're showing the cancer's come back and we want you to start chemotherapy immediately and this was on a Wednesday mm-hmm. and by, by Friday I was packed up again and back in London for treatment and it was just traumatic I mean anyone that's had any kind of chemotherapy treatment they're, they're all very different but my my I had mouth ulcers, my hair fell out, my skin was burnt, I have all these dark marks on my skin. I was completely exhausted, I was sick all the time. It was just horrendous. Um, yeah, I, I mean, just try, just remembering that period that it was only last year is baffling to me, but I had so many people praying for me yeah. um, and just wonderful doctors. And um, yeah, I'm definitely like recovering. I feel like I'm fully recovered, but... I feel really healthy and good. And um, it, it really taught me a lot about, I guess, resilience and um, just about taking your health for granted, I think, because I, I definitely have. Yeah, I, I 
find that um, so from my contacts I was living in a war zone uh, most dangerous country in the world people trying to kill me expecting to die never expecting to reach the age of 30 and, mm-hmm. and I would come back to England and the people that because I would live so alive, you know, you, you, yeah. when, you, when you live expecting to die, you live alive. And I, and I love it because in one of the interviews I saw that you put your favorite verse was John 10, 10, which is also mine. So Jesus said, <laughs> you know, life and life to the full or life in abundance. So that's how I'm seeking to live by. But, you know, I lived so alive. Um, and every day I wanted to make count because each weekend, particularly, we drive along death roads. And one time 40 people got killed and I drove through. So you just lived mm-hmm. life in technicolor. So when I came back to England or America preaching, whatever the people i found relate to me were people who got a second chance through cancer you know who realized how uh well they're in mortality and they're like it is a gift to be alive you just you want to make your life count it, you want to have your house in order don't you you want to you don't you want to keep short accounts you don't want to keep a hold of petty grudges there's yeah. so much good that will come out of your cancer experience isn't there absolutely agree and i mean your experience sounds uh, you know really like on the edge so i, I don't really feel like i they can they compare but i definitely have always loved that scripture you say john 10 10 and um yeah i just I, i've always loved life but i really love life now and i love um just being able to communicate that love of life to people through mm-hmm. like through interviews and my writing. I do a weekly essay at, on on Substack called Still Standing. And people say to me two things, like one, oh, we love your authenticity, but also like you're just full of joy. I don't know that I am always full of joy, but I seek to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this thing I say, like I, you know, I love champagne. I love dancing on tables. And that's not necessarily those physical things. It's just the feeling that elicits just the idea of celebration and um yeah so I, I do a lot to protect my joy and yeah. some of that involves stuff like not reading the news yeah <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah. A really important discipline um you know this morning before we got talking i i was i was thinking of your i mean talk about your job experience so losing baby annie and then divorce and then cancer like a three sucker punches in a row amidst others no doubt that we can't cover but it made me think of this this poem it's my it's my favorite poem it's called the race have you ever come across the race by dh groberg i don't think so okay well listen uh, let me just go for it i mean i've learned it off my heart because it's so beautiful and i've, I've often okay. shared it but you guys listen up as well i just find it so moving and, and you talk about well those three sucker blows and it, it, it talks into that it goes like this quit give up you're beaten they shout at me and plead There's just too much against you now. This time you can't succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene, for just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well, excitement sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race or, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son, and each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they flew, young hearts and hopes afire to win and be the hero there was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, 
was running near the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as it, they speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped, oh, trying hard to catch himself. His arms flew every place. And mid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell. And with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. He quickly rose, no damage done behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. Ah, oh, he wished. Then he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face, that steady look which said again, get up and win the race. So up he jumped to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain these, those yards, he thought, I've got to move real fast. And exerting everything he had, he regained eight, then 10, but trying so hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Ah, oh, defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? I've lost. So what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, whom soon he'd have to face. Get up. An echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and run the race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You have not lost at all. For winning is no more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to run once more, and with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. And so far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling. Three times he rose again. Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end, and, and they cheered the winning runner as he crossed the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last, with head bowed low and proud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won. His father said, you rose each time you fell. And now, when things seem hard and dark and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all, and all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win the race. Wow. It gets me every time. <laughs> I can't believe you memorised that, first of all. But I, I absolutely love that. I love that sentiment as well. And for me, as a, um, as a sprinter and a hurdler, <laughs> hurdler that yeah, really yeah. resonates, that feeling of... Um, you know, getting up once you fall. And also, Simon, I, I'm so glad you read that because it reminded me of one of my favourite favorite verses. And also this is another kind of God experience that mm. happened. Um, so I, I uh, when my daughter died, I got a tattoo of her name on my rib cage. Um, and I, at the time I was looking at other tattoo, or quotes for tattoos. And one of them I loved was fall down seven times, stand up eight. And yeah. I love that sentiment. 
But also, one day, God showed me in the Bible, there's a scripture, and I couldn't remember, I can't remember where it is, and I didn't want to look because I didn't want to ruin this, <laughs> my spirit listening. But in this scripture says, the godly may fall seven times, but they will get up again. And I was overwhelmed by how incredible that was because that exactly the sentiment that was expressed in this poem and, and in life in me as well was like just keep getting up so thank you for sharing that because that's really encouraging to me and it was reminded me of that of that scripture as well i'm gonna brilliant. find it after the podcast yeah brilliant well listen um we're sort of coming to land but i, I do want to, to sort of talk about your book as well because a lot of that is to do with the resilience and well it's called still standing 100 lessons from an unsuccessful life in inverted commas you know give it a plug what do you want to share about that yes so um it came out during the pandemic actually which is quite interesting um and it's the book i i say i wrote it for myself and it's kind of because um at the time nobody was really writing about this what i call wilderness period so that before you get married again or have another child have your rainbow baby is what they call babies that are born after miscarriage or baby loss um people always say things to me like don't worry when you meet, meet someone else and get married again or when you have another baby or when you're better you know mm. everything will be amazing and perfect which is all well and good but then I just thought but then where I am right now what is that journey about you know what's happening there and for some people that kind of in-between journey is very short and for some people it's very long and I'm yeah. still single I'm still childless um, and I'm recovering from health issues. So I, I really wanted this book to be an encouragement to people who are kind of st- st- they're still standing because mm. that, there's that feeling of like you've said in that poem and that you're not even in the race, you're kind of on the sidelines because you don't have the qualifications to even be in the race. But yeah. um, I really wanted to encourage people that God is God is so much still with you and, and there in the wilderness period. Um, and just some kind of funny and some serious anecdotes from my own experience of um, life lessons from that period that I'm still in, just to Mm. encourage people and um, to kind of uh, remove this impression that unless you're doing something the world affirms you for, um, then you're not doing anything. Uh, You're not learning anything. Because my growing period has been quite extreme in this period of time. Um, I've definitely been learning a lot. I'm still learning a lot. And... um, yeah, it's a chance many people don't get, I think, to just be with themselves and God, which I think is, um, I would love to be married again and, you know, have all these things happening, but they're not. And so it gives me a chance to to dig deeper in myself and, and work out why I am the way I am and, and what God wants me to do and um, and just kind of sit with myself. And so, yeah, the book is about encouraging people who are in that period and also who are not just to understand those of the those around them that might be um and that you're not standing still you you know you're still standing yeah yeah that's good and uh it's a redefinition of success isn't it i love um it was mother Teresa of calcutta she was once asked and you can imagine it with our western you know sort of wanting to measure success she was she was asked by someone how do you measure the success of your work and she just she just looked puzzled and and then she replied I, I don't remember that the Lord Jesus ever spoke of success. He spoke only of faithfulness in love. And this is the only success that really counts. I love that. Absolutely. Um, look, maybe in closing, so we'll put all that in the blurb because we want people to be able to um, follow you, the Substack stuff, and also buy the book, whatever. Um, and there's loads we haven't really had time to talk about. But I wanted to maybe just close with um, 
you know, you talk about a wilderness period or wilderness season and having been through Job season. So, you know, how, who is Jesus to you and, and how are you hanging on in there? Oh, who is Jesus to me? Uh, you know, my different experiences over the years, um, I think, are, have revealed God to me in his different forms. And I'm learning just how how much grace God has for us. And mm-hmm. I, I've learned to understand God as my father because I didn't necessarily have that strong um, yeah. father figure when I was growing up mm-hmm. in my own dad. I'm learning his unconditional love for me and I'm learning the closeness of the Holy Spirit. And so recently, just in terms of Jesus, it's just been about him walking alongside us, walking alongside me in whatever is going on in my life. And um, yeah, I'm learning that Jesus is not as hard on on me as I am myself. Mm-hmm. And that's been a real kind of like sigh of relief for me that I don't have to keep upholding to this idea of myself as, you know, really holy or particularly uh, pierce. I just think... Jesus loves me as I am, and that's really freeing. Yeah. Great. Hey, well, listen, and uh, be it speaking to you, Tyler, but also to everyone listening, you know, that I love in that poem, the father, his steady look that is just saying, get up and run the race. And, and to me, you won because you rose each time you fell. And so, Tola, I'm thrilled. I praise God that you are still standing, that you're not standing still. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that you're helping people redefine what a successful, unsuccessful life is. I'm, I praise God that you're healthy, that you're battling through through the cancer and the various knocks you've got. And uh, I just want to pray blessings on you, whatever the Lord leads you into, and that he uses your writing gift that uh, I know you mentioned a prophecy about books being written. So you've done one. So may there be more free fruitful books that draw people along in their faith journey and your, your role at um, Women Alive and whatever else you, you, get up, you get up to in life. God bless you so much. Amen. Thanks, Simon. I really appreciate you having me. Brilliant. Hey, guys, um, we'll put plenty of stuff on Tolo in the blurb uh, for you to be able to follow and track with her. But uh, if you've enjoyed it, I'd love you to give us a cracking review. That's really helpful on Spotify, iTunes. Um, it just means more people get to listen to it. And I love, I'm getting loads of feedback from people, lots of them really hurting how it's ministering to them. So yeah, do send in feedback. That's just an encouragement to us. Writing a review is actually the best way you can help us. Um, and uh, if you want to be in touch with me, it's simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms. And I really want to thank my colleague and very good buddy, Adam Thomas Deer for the editing and Mike Sandiman for doing the mixing. And we've got another fantastic guest next week. But in the meantime, you guys have a good time and God bless and toodaloo.